Hey everybody, thanks for joining us on Code Chat. I'm Jeremy Foster. You can find me online at codefoster.com and I am talking today to Kale Teeter. And we are going to be talking about a subject that is near and dear to my heart, even though I'm very inexperienced with it. So I'm, I'm actually very excited about the conversation today. We're going to be talking about blockchain. So a couple weeks ago, I told you that some of the technologies that I'm working on are XYZ, and some of the technologies that I'm excited about are, and one of those was blockchain. So, Kale, welcome to the show. Thanks for joining me. Sure. And my name is Kale Teeter. I'm a senior SDE and DX, and I work on blockchain. So I've been working on this since blockchain's been a thing at Microsoft. Uh, we're working with a lot of partners out there in the field, a lot of startups, uh, as well as core engineering in the Microsoft space on what we're kind of innovating on this space. So I kind of wanted to go through, you know, kind of what is a blockchain, what's Microsoft doing in this space, and just some of the fundamentals from a developer standpoint of like what you're going to do with blockchain or when would you use a blockchain. That's perfect. So let's start with what is blockchain. I think a lot of people might have a little bit of information about it, but let's just assume Right out of the gates, what is it? Sure, so a blockchain you can think of is, again, it's not a, something that's a brand new concept. So the components that I'm going to describe that make up a blockchain are actually things that have been around for quite some time. We talk about things like digital signatures and key pairs. These things have been around for 30 years. And so we're basically just combining these technologies together uh, to form this kind of secure ledger technology. So you can think of it kind of like a database, uh, but not in the traditional sense of a relational database. Um, you can think about it, it's very distributed. I, I put up a slide here that has a couple of key principles around what drives an actual blockchain, what's it made up of. Um, one of the key things is the security aspect. Now, when we talk about blockchains, one of the most uh, impactful or most long-running out there is Bitcoin. Mm -hmm. uh, and so when you think about Bitcoin, it's really a, a public network that allows people to trade value. Um, and one of the things around that is every time a transaction comes into the system, we actually have to sign it. So we always have a guarantee of like where this thing actually was rooted from uh, mathematically. So okay. there's no way to kind of uh, manipulate this thing after the fact. <laughs> you could think of it also as a write-once-read-many database. Uh, like a worm kind of drive where okay. we're going to write stuff, but we can never manipulate it after we write it. Um, there's a big shared aspect to it. And when I say shared, it means think of this like a logical database. And uh, one of the things we were talking about was, you know, what, why would we use a blockchain? You know, where, where's it important? Is, should I just use this for everything now, for a database? And that's really not the point. Um, the point is where we, uh, one of the big things is around sharing data. Think about an enterprise scenario where there's multiple businesses involved, a supply chain, for instance. That's made up of many parties building components, and they're all being assembled together in, by another company. Um, typically, in these scenarios, we have uh, multiple parties, and they all have kind of a copy of the database themselves, and they're synchronizing, and it's very complex systems that make these up. In a blockchain, we can think of it as it's one database or one ledger transaction log that everything's going into, so everybody's kind of funneling into that place, but it's still distributed, which is another key principle. The distributed nature is basically saying, hey, we have this transaction log of everything that happened, and everybody's going to keep a copy of it. Hmm. This way, as I write data to my transaction log and it replicates to, to you, for instance, as a business partner, uh, you're going to say, that doesn't make sense. No, that's not what I have. My copy of the ledger says it's something different. Okay, oh, you must be doing something to your database that's not good. And they'll ask everybody that's in this network, hey, what do you have? Um, so they're basically forming a majority around okay. who's right here. Yeah, you know? that makes sense. 
Yep. Now, I, I'm guessing that most of my audience has deep familiarity with Git repositories. Is that an analogy? Because we're all sharing history of our source code in a Git repository. Very similar. Okay. Uh, I think the thing that would be a little bit uh, more complex in a blockchain is that consensus mechanism. So okay. in Git, you know, we're basically comparing repositories and someone, think about a merge. Mm -hmm. Somebody has to make the choice around when a merge happens, right? I see. Uh, in this case, we're using math and a consensus algorithm to actually do that in, instead of a human. So it can't be manipulated by somebody. Okay. So maybe how does the blockchain technology impact your average developer? Is this something that I'm going to use for my next to-do app? Is this something that I'm going to be working on only if I'm at a bank? Or, or where, where and when will I use blockchain? No, we actually see this being used in a lot of different use cases. Now, coming out and saying, hey, I'm going to write a mobile application that has a simple database backend, like a to-do app, let's say, yeah. probably doesn't make a whole lot of sense. And why not? Uh, the reason would be is there's a lot of complexity to set this system up, right? So okay. there's a lot of nodes, and it takes actually a lot of nodes to actually make one of these networks up. So again, back to the aspect of, am I going to be working with somebody else and kind of sharing some data with them or, uh, in a business scenario or something like that? That really makes a lot of sense. So when you see those kind of key points, I need to share data, boom, that's one thing you're looking for. Um, the other thing you would want to look for, like the use cases we see are not just in the financial space. That's obviously a big one because there's a ledger concept here. And yeah. obviously, accountants naturally will gravitate toward that. Oh, yeah, I understand the ledger. But if you think more broadly, we're actually forming a digital identity foundation, and we're actually using this for decentralized identity. Okay. And so in that aspect, um, it actually crosses over between public and private chains. So we talked a lot about consortiums and private chains here up to this point, but also Bitcoin and Ethereum in the public sense, they're huge chains. So they're very hard to manipulate. They make a great place to anchor things. Mm. So I could hash an identity about myself and anchor it on the blockchain. It's very hard for someone, impossible for someone to go change that thing. So by anchor, does it, is, are you insinuating that these chains can be forked? Yeah, so uh, it's kind of interesting to talk mm -hmm. about forks. So in, in these things are immutable. So that's one of the key, key yeah. ideas about a blockchain is you can't change it. And so there have been instances in both Bitcoin and Ethereum where uh, a fork had to happen. And there's different types of forks. There's soft forks and hard forks. But the biggest one, you know, people talk about is a hard fork, which basically means can we go back and rewrite history? Mm. Um, it's actually in many different contexts, not just rewriting history, but we had this incident happen where something bad happens in the chain. Should we go back to this point in time and then fork off of that? Almost like a Git repository, yeah, the same right. way you had before. Um, and again, that's driven by the people that are in that chain, you know, so they can figure out if they yeah. want to make it. But in many ways, forks are actually software updates. Um, so you can look at some of the current stuff that's going on with Bitcoin, and they have scaling issues. And in order to fix those, it's a software update. Like, they have to change how miners work or how some of the system works. And in order to do that, they have to push a software update, and everybody has to accept it. Yeah. So again, that's, that's a fork, you know, so you can think about it in that context. One of the things I find interesting is that you're going from a, uh, a private data storage mechanism, either on-prem or in your own cloud that you have full control of, and then you know, kind of asking your users to trust you because you're storing their data in, mm -hmm. in your location. You're opening that up, and yet we're calling it more secure. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so it's interesting, too, when people think about these chains and say, like, well, it's digitally signed. So mm -hmm. you, you guys probably know that a digital signature is not encryption in, in the strictest sense, right? Mm -hmm. So we're basically signing it, and we can validate that, that Jeremy signed it or Kale signed it or any of these people signed it. We can prove that. 
but it has nothing to do with encryption. Mm -hmm. The data, and actually in the public side, we want it to be in the clear. The transparency needs to be there to say, hey, is anybody colluding <laughs> or making problems here? Uh, in the enterprise side, that's another kind of key point. I put a slide up here. Uh, it's kind of the evolution of blockchains. <laughs> so we started off with what blockchain 1.0, which was essentially Bitcoin, which was a simple ledger that allowed us to basically transfer value between these uh, different kind of entities in the system. <laughs> and then we progressed to blockchain 2.0. That's probably about a year and a half, two years ago when Ethereum was kind of launched. And they basically said, hey, we're going to layer this approach one where you can actually program in this thing now. So instead of just saying, hey, I'm going to transfer value from this account to this account and it's distributed and we can kind of secure it, now we say, not only can you do that, we can actually inject code up there and have that run. And it's basically like a code signing. So as we write this code and we'll walk through some of the various frameworks, we actually push that code up. It is signed by me and it's also on the blockchain so it's immutable. So nobody can go tamper with that code and say, hey, let's do something malicious with this. So that feels to me like a huge community creating a virtual machine together. That's right. right? They often refer to it as a world computer. Yeah, uh, because you can amazing. think about it in the logical sense, it's a it's a really a world computer. Um, and then on the where Microsoft's kind of playing in this space is we got involved in now blockchain 3.0. We're basically leveraging some of the resources we have in Azure, our cloud, mm -hmm. as well as all the knowledge we've built up over the years building client server applications and compilers right. and all the different things we've done. And basically saying, how can we improve this this situation, this ecosystem? How can we make this more palatable for enterprises as opposed to just a cryptocurrency kind of thing? Um, we see huge value in that. We have a lot of customers that are demanding this technology. They really like it. And so that's where we're innovating. And just to kind of go through a little bit of the flow here, on the left side of this, you'll see our, we actually have a lot of the most popular chains out there in existence today. These are big players in the space. R3 Corda uh, have a huge consortium of financial institutions, banks working with them. Enterprise Ethereum Alliance, we're working directly with them. Um, so as they formed this alliance, which just happened in February, hmm. Microsoft's at the table from the start as a software provider saying, how can we improve our services to make this thing better? Um, we also have a lot of people from different industries in there, finance, supply chain, all these coming in saying, this is what we want. Uh, what can you guys build for us, you know, kind of thing. Uh, Hyperledger. Uh, the Hyperledger fabric is actually something formed out of the Linux Foundation. Um, so we approach those guys. This is a whole separate technology built on enterprise, and we basically have that adopted in Azure. You can do it today. Um, Chain.com is another one, and Digital Asset Holdings. There's a whole power from what we have up there in Azure. And our idea was to basically, let's make it easy for people to pick what they want, and within a single click and answering a couple parameters, you can have the infrastructure stood up. Now you can actually focus on what's important, building the app. This is what's most important to these things. So as a developer, if you weren't confused enough already by the 45 <laughs> different database <laughs> technologies out there, Blockchain is introducing some more for us to consider. That's right. That's right. So think about those key principles when you're approaching these things, but we obviously are, are very focused on that. We started working on the infrastructure. We're working on middleware now, so we have a lot of components in that space from the identity side. Obviously, we have a huge directory service with Azure AD. Mm -hmm. um, we also have a lot of storage uh, technology that we built over the years, and Azure being one of the biggest. Uh, we have a lot of HSM and security type models that we can use with Key Vault and all those different pieces. So we're basically trying to kind of mold those things into the blockchain and make them work better in that space. Now, Kale, if I understand it right, the, the blockchain, one of the core tenets of the structure is that each of the blocks in the chain is reliant upon the last one for its validity. 
And so by looking at the last one and, and testing its validity, I've essentially tested the validity of all of its ancestors, right? That's right. So you can think of it as like a big hash tree. So essentially what we're going to do is people are going to make transactions, and these transactions can be executing this code. We call it smart contracts or just transferring value between people. But as those transactions pile up, eventually the system's going to say, okay, we need to create a block. Mm -hmm. um, the block is governed by a lot of things. It's very complex, but it could be like a size, let's say, for instance. Okay. So it's going to say, I'm going to package these 10 transactions up. That's going to be my block. Uh, when it does that, it does exactly what you said. So it's basically going to hash all those and then link in the block before it. So it's, it's got this strong mathematical link up the tree. So as that thing gets longer, it gets stronger, right? It's harder for you to sure. break. You can't go back and manipulate that thing. So now it seems like validating would be almost instantaneous, but what about querying the data? What if I want to go back? I mean, obviously, if this is a public network, this might be an absolutely gigantic chain with really large blocks. So how is how's the performance of querying that? Yeah, it's an interesting case because basically it's very easy to kind of query if you know the index you're looking for. So you can think mm. of it as like a database where you already know the index. If you don't know the index, it's kind of an interesting scenario where our partners are kind of building one now because we can't just do traditional approaches where we say, oh, we'll just cache it. Mm -hmm. We'll go build our structure and we'll cache it over here. Well, that's a problem, right? Because we need <laughs> that strong link to know that nobody manipulated it. And if you start creating it somewhere else, the structure, then how do we know for sure you didn't manipulate it? Oh, yeah. Um, so it's kind of an interesting challenge, but we're working through that to kind of build those structures to make these query performance much better. Okay. Okay, so there's lots of offerings, lots of different kinds of blockchains, flavors of blockchains. Um, there's kind of a lot of churn right now. Obviously, it's, it's young, it's emergent. Wh how impactful do you think blockchain is to our futures? Do you think this is going to be uh, revolutionary or evolutionary? I kind of joke. So when I started working, at least in Microsoft, I had some blockchain background before. But when I started working on this with Microsoft, learning a bit more as Ethereum launched, uh, my, my manager called me and said, so what do you think about this? You think this blockchain thing's got legs? You think it's cool? I was like... I'm pretty sure it will affect everything. It's basically going to change everything on the internet as we do it today. <laughs> like this is this big of a technology. It's very transformative. Um, you can look at it right now and say, oh, it's something for banks or these kind yeah, of things. Yeah, right. And it's not. I mean, <laughs> we can see some of our partners called Blockstack that we're working with are actually building decentralized DNS. Oh, wow. So you can think about, like, even in recent history, we've had DNS <coughs> attacks and these kind of things. These things have a lot of protection in for things like DOS attacks. Right. Because we have such a distributed nature, you would almost have to go attack every one of those. And in order to actually manipulate a transaction, you would literally have to attack every one of those nodes at the exact time that transaction was going to clear, which is... Th that's what possible. I was thinking. It's almost like it means that a hacker no longer has the benefit of being able to pick people one at a time and attack them one at a time on their own. He kind of always has to attack the entire group. That's right. And because we have strength in numbers, you know, as mm -hmm. these things get bigger, they obviously are, are much more resilient to these kind of attacks from... Okay, so attacks. probably a revolutionary technology. Yeah. One that, this is one of those technologies, I guess, like machine learning, where no matter what kind of a developer you are, tune into blockchain, maybe learn some blockchain, you know, yeah. figure this stuff out a little bit. Yeah, definitely. Um, and just to kind of go through some of the things that we've kind of focused on, again, we, we want people to fail fast and fail cheap with this kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. So get your hands on it. It's very easy to get into this stuff in the Azure portal. Um, we're continuing to evolve that. The thing is just exploding. Like we have vendors, I have 160 vendors I'm working with trying to plug these mm. guys into Azure. So it's, it's a very uh, kind of robust space. And to your comment, it's changing rapidly. It's like okay. if you don't like how it is today, just wait two days. It'll change. And then you can have what you need it there, you know. So get us point, like how, if I want to play with this tonight, 
on Azure. Mm -hmm. How do I do that? Do I spin up a VM from a template or what? Yeah, yeah, we can jump out here and I'll show you where you guys could kind of get started here. If you pop out to your browser and just go into the Azure portal, this is our uh, interface to actually come into there. If you actually just click on new here, you'll see we actually have a blockchain category uh, right here. And if you go into there, you'll see a bunch of different kind of featured apps, and I'll just break it out here so you can see it a little bit easier. But we actually have like, you know, the kind of the new stuff that we brought in there, uh, single ledger uh, or single node, multi-nodes. We have full networks. Single ones are really good as a developer when you get started because you don't want to have to like go through and spin up like tons of infrastructure just so you can test some of your code. Okay. Um, so spinning up these single ones is actually really good for developers to get their hands on it, start working with it, start writing smart contracts or chain code or all these different pieces in there and have it run and execute and say, yeah, it's good now. Now we kind of hardened our stuff. Now we can move up to like the enterprise or the production level, which would be a multi-node. When you say single node, you're talking about the kind uh, nodes as in a system, right? That's right, like a virtual machine you okay. can think of it. So it's basically running in the context of a single VM. Okay. Uh, the multi-node are much more complex, obviously, because we form those networks. You know, everybody's like, well, anybody can do that. It's kind of easy. Yeah, you can, but if you've ever done it, you can easily churn a day away just getting a network stood up. And so we said, why not just take that complexity out of people? It's not just firing up VMs. It's like firing up VMs and then doing a bunch of configuration and then starting them in a certain sequence and having all these kind of things happen. Um, so we just said, hey, let's just take that complexity out and make it five minutes. Let people just fire these things up and, and have at it. Okay, sorry to distract, but that reminds me of another question that I have, which is that uh, blockchains can exist in the public space or they can exist in the private space. Or from what I've read, there's a there's an intermediate uh, kind of a consortium where it's a group of private uh, entities or organizations that kind of validate that that network, and that brings up the issue of trust. So how does that all work? Yeah. So basically, when you think about this, it's actually uh, even more complex than that. So if you think <laughs> about uh, in the public sense, Bitcoin, I mentioned, public Ethereum, these are what we call trustless networks. I don't even know who my neighbor is. I'm, I'm dedicating a machine, and I said, I'm going to put this machine up here and be part of this network and do some transactions on it, and I have no idea if the guy sitting beside me is a hacker or a really good guy or any of these kind of things. I have no idea. Um, so the system has been built and is basically securing uh, right around $100 billion now in all cryptocurrency. Um, so you can think that that's a pretty big target for <laughs> hackers to kind of go after, and it's been running for uh, nine-plus years uh, in Bitcoin's case. Um, so these are very resilient systems that have kind of been proven in the wild. Now, I would say Bitcoin is a, is a pure public kind of play. When you look at Ethereum, this is another kind of interesting thing about Ethereum. So it can run in the context of public. There's a big network out there with billions of dollars in it. And there's also, hey, I can run this thing privately. I can literally take the same executable. And the other thing that kind of blows my mind is Ethereum is a single executable. Oh, wow. It's a single binary this huh. whole system runs off of. Wow. It's, it just blows my mind that we have... 40,000, almost 40,000 nodes running in the internet in one binary. That's amazing. <laughs> and, and that makes it uh, makes me glad that I can spin up networks in Azure, and, and Azure will handle some of that inter-process inter communication, right? Yep, yep. And I think there's a big play, though, even for the public and private. So a lot of the financial institutions, insurance companies, all these different people we're talking to from the customer side are saying, I would never be in a public space. I would never be in a public space. And you say, that's great. I understand. Like, you wouldn't want to put your bank transactions out there just for anybody in the world. But when we talk about things like rooting digital identities, for instance, mm -hmm. um, you know, basically, what we say is, hey, we have a really strong chain here. We can take a hash of some identifier. It doesn't even have to be a human. It could be an object like IoT. And we can basically root that in these blockchains. I mean, keep it in the blockchain, and we can reference it, and we know for sure that nobody manipulated it. <laughs> yeah. That's super powerful. It yeah. is. So I think about those pages where I go to 
some online commerce site or something like that and they say, how would you like to sign in? They show me a list of five different identity providers and I just look at it and I go, who do I trust the most? You know, <laughs> yeah. like, do I trust this company to be the people that, that manage my identity? And that's a, that's a big level of trust right there. Yeah, I, I almost would rather trust the mass as opposed to trusting the individual. I, I think it's super powerful and that's part of what the Digital Identity Foundation is about saying, you know, there's all these different applications out there. There's these social networks that you're signing into, and there's email and all these different things that you actually sign into. And it's like every time you do that, you're basically storing something over there with them that could be hacked. It's a centralized kind of repo now that could yeah. be hacked. And you have many of these. So if we could say, hey, let's pull the authentication out of there, store that in this massive internet or this new kind of internet that has this identity system in it, uh, that could basically be a really strong authentication play. And now it's just about keeping your settings and these kind of things. And we basically kind of decentralize that as well. Boy, that's that's really interesting. I can imagine the day that the um, the various government entities are able to uh, basically authorize that we are who we say we are, much like they already do with our national identities, in the form of a little paper card with a number that's so easy to misplace or steal or or otherwise. It's, it's a super powerful and if you think about a scenario, we always bring this up and I don't know why we always bring up bars, but uh, it's an interesting <laughs> use case. So if you think about what happens today when you go into some place and they actually say, I need to see your identity because I need to make sure you're 21 or 18 or whatever the age is. Yeah. Um, what are they getting? Way too much information. Right. right. They're getting your home address, they're getting all this other information. All they really needed to know is, is this person above this age? It's a binary answer. So <laughs> if we have attestation service and we have kind of prototyped this already with these systems, we can basically have them make a call real time and you just show them a barcode or you know this thing that you have and they'll go get an attestation from whatever state you're in and basically say, yeah, yeah, he's of age. And that's all they need to know. They don't need to know any other information. So I would argue that it's even more secure than the technology we have today. Okay, so if as a developer I determine that my application maybe is a good candidate for using the blockchain technology as a way of persisting data, do I have another decision to make and that is do I let this out into the public Ethereum or the public um, uh, network or do I host my own private one? What, what are the decision points there? Yeah, I think the thing to think about there is what pieces make sense in what place and what do you need to store on the blockchain? Um, so this, again, is not a hammer to like say, okay, I'm going to use blockchain, that's going to be my back end. Mm -hmm. That's really not a good use case. We're still going to use existing technology uh, to store data off-chain. Um, because blockchains have limited block sizes, there's all kind of technicalities around that. So it really makes sense to say, what do I need to prove about this? What do I want to make sure never changes? Mm -hmm. What do I really really secure about this thing? And that's not everything in your app. It's just certain elements that you need to store over there. Okay. So I would argue that you should kind of, you know, watch out for that kind of stuff. And I just want to walk through real quick a developer workflow. Wonderful. What's different about this than traditional development? You know, we talk about client server or web-based application. I have a slide here that basically walks through this and we're talking about smart contracts in this case. Smart contracts are basically basically just chunks of code that we're going to write functions and we have some state variables inside of it. Just think of it in that case. It literally looks like JavaScript uh, in the Solidity form, which is one of the most popular languages. And so basically what happens is when you build your first smart contract, you deploy it to change, really cool, like it's a nice event and you can see it actually run. And then you start thinking about, okay, now I need to build something bigger, you know, I'm building these apps. And pretty soon you're decoupling smart contract logic and you're putting them in different smart contracts and they're referring to each other. And the piece you need to worry about here is these things get deployed and are immutable on the blockchain. 
this code. Mm. So let's say I have three, like in this diagram, I have three pieces of code here that are kind of linked together, they're referring to each other. If I replace that middle one, I break anybody that's upstream. Because right. as soon as I deploy it to the blockchain, it gets a new address, and this is now the proof, like this is the system we should be using, this is the smart contract we should be using, and the old one is still there, but we would need to migrate our smart contracts over there. So it's an important thing to realize that the developer workflow is slight, slightly different oh, here. Okay, so in other words, if we make a smart contract that says that I am going to pay you $100 a month. Mm -hmm. And then later on, we decide to reduce that. It mm -hmm. doesn't amount to a change of that record from 100 down to 75, but rather it's issuing another contract that that uh, is what, a monthly negative $25? Yeah, typically the state, and you're talking about state here when we feed in these different variables, that can be variable. But the actual code itself that executes, the functions I and see. those pieces can't change. Okay. Uh, if we want to introduce a new state variable, yeah, that's a change. You know, But if we just have existing ones we're going to feed values into, no problem. But if we to make a logic change, we find a bug. You know, we may want to make an enhancement. All these kind of pieces, we I need see. to think about that. Gotcha. Um, so when we deploy these, there's actually a couple different kind of models to go through here. I'll just walk through quickly some of the most popular. Uh, BlockApps is a company that builds this product called Strato. And their idea was, you know, this blockchain stuff's really cool, but you need to understand new languages to work with it, and you also need to understand that it's a different kind of, it's an RPC mechanism as opposed to like REST or something like that that most people are really familiar with now. And so what they said was, well, why don't we just put a REST interface in front of this thing and just make mm -hmm. it easy for these guys to work with it? Um, right. So that's what they did. So they have a Strato blockchain, which is based on Ethereum. They built an SDK on top of it, much like Azure. You know, we have this API, and then we put an SDK on top of it, and then we start building on top of that. It's exactly what they did. Uh, they have Blockage that sits in front of there. It's a nice REST interface for you to consume, and you can build your decentralized app just using REST. Hmm. You don't even need to know a whole lot about the internals of blockchain to actually make that work. And then is that sitting on private or public? That's a private blockchain. So okay. um, but again, we have connectors. So uh, when I say connectors, typically when you use something like Strato, you're writing a private blockchain. But if you said, hey, I actually want to interface with the public, uh, we build connectors to actually allow that, that system to function like that. Okay. Uh, Truffle is a really good one, really popular in this space, especially around Ethereum. And Truffle, again, you can take a look at the slide. We basically have public Ethereum. We can do private. Um, we have TestRPC at the bottom, which is kind of an interesting kind of tool. Um, so TestNet, let's talk about that first. TestNet is basically a public blockchain that's test environment. So anybody wants to try something out, it's like a public version, but it's not the real public version, and then we ah, have the public one. Interesting. Uh, we also have this thing called TestRPC, which the Truffle guys have built. Tim Coulter is uh, kind of the author of this. And what that is, is essentially an emulator for a blockchain, which is super awesome for oh, developers. Wow, yeah. So now we don't even have to spin up infrastructure in order to use this thing. We can fire up a console and basically say, create me 10 accounts, I want to start working with this blockchain and deploying smart contracts. Uh, in seconds, we're running, and it's in memory. So we can just destroy it. If we shut down the, the command window, it's all gone. Start it up again, we can do it like that. So it makes really rapid development uh, easy you know, with this framework. He has an SDK that's really cool, and the other thing his SDK is really powerful at is detecting those dependencies we talked about. So as we start building these more complex trees of smart contracts, uh, Truffle's able to detect that. So you basically just come in, write your code, and then you go, hey, Truffle, go ahead and deploy that for me. And it'll go, oh, okay, let me see what changed here. Okay, this changed, this changed, let me deploy these two contracts. I'll put them in the right order. So it'll handle kind of the DevOps stuff for you and make sure that those things get deployed out as a package correctly. So is, is Truffle an independent organization or is it a platform or what? 
Yeah, yeah. So it's an independent company. Truffle has formed. It's, it's out of Consensus, uh, which is an okay. incubation studio in New York that's been kind of funding these startups. But yeah, it's a framework in, in the strictest sense. They basically built an open source framework to do this. Okay. Now, one service that I was, I'm in the IoT space, and one of the things that I'm particularly excited about is the microtransactions on a framework called IOTA, mm -hmm. IOTA. Mm -hmm. And I know that it's based on Truffle, and it has a different paradigm for uh, charging uh, the 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 user of the of blockchain. Mm -hmm. So that brings up in my mind how how does this get paid for? There are kind of microtransactions built into evaluating a chain, right? That's right. So basically, the way this works, whether it's in public or private, I'll speak to private in a second. But in a public sense, we have to pay for this <coughs> compute. So people have basically come together and said, "I'll dedicate compute compute resources to be part of this." But I need something, right? I'm, I'm giving you compute, so I need something back. There's electricity. <coughs> there's a machine there. And so the transactions, as they come through, whether it's Bitcoin or Ethereum, basically have a transaction cost associated with them. Um, so in, in Bitcoin space, it's a pure transaction cost. And in Ethereum, they have this thing called gas. Now, gas is really interesting because they've actually used it to kind of protect the network. So what it does is says, OK, I wrote this piece of code. I'm going to put it up there in, in the blockchain. And you publish that. The developer publishes it. Now, I come along as a user and say, hey, I want to execute that function up there. So whenever I go to execute it, it's going to say, I need some, some gas to do this. I need, I need some money to actually do this. And so basically what it does, the EVM, or the thing behind the blockchain, is actually going to go look at the code and go, okay, here's the instructions I need to operate. So I'm going to need this much gas. It actually mm. does a real-time wow. calculation wow. so that you can't expend all the compute. Like you couldn't send something up there and say, I want to take all the compute resources forever. Uh, it wouldn't allow you to do that. There's basically limits in there. The EVM will protect it and say, no, 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 that's not possible. And you don't have enough gas to do that anyhow. Uh, now, in the private side, obviously, this gas thing is a little bit encumbering. Because in gas sense, when we're in a private network or a consortium, we kind of trust our partner. There's partial right, trust there. Right. So I'm pretty sure that you're not going <laughs> to try to DOS attack me unless somebody has, has attacked you. So again, we can kind of loosen up some of those things in order to make the transactions go faster because we know that we're controlling the network medium between us. So that's what Truffle does? Truffle's really just there as an orchestration tool for, for developers. So as you're building code, making sure you can detect your dependencies and the DevOps side of it is really what Truffle's kind of claim to fame and, and position is in the industry. Okay. Uh, and the last one I just wanted to talk about was Quorum. Uh, and I only bring this up because it's very unique in this space. This is something like super cutting edge uh, that we've been working with with some of our partners. So it's a fork of Ethereum. When I say fork, not fork like Bitcoin, we actually took the Ethereum code base and said, hey, we like Ethereum, but there's like these couple of things that we want to change about it to make it work good for enterprise. One of them is every time I do a transaction on a public blockchain, that transaction payload is in the clear. So if I send you uh, two Bitcoins, that transaction will live forever in the blockchain. Anybody from the beginning of time till now can go and say, hey, he did that. I saw it on this date. He actually transferred that value there. That works fine, and that's great in a trustless system. But in a private one, it became kind of, again, like a stumbling block because it was like, well, businesses are like, yeah, I'm fine with that with my partners, except for what if I'm doing a deal with my partners and I want to keep them on the same blockchain and I'm giving you a discount? I don't right. necessarily want this guy to see that discount. So what Quorum did was said, okay, let's put a privacy module in there that allows us to encrypt those transactions selectively. So it's a very kind of elegant way they did it. You basically have a, this thing called Constellation that runs inside of there, and I can selectively encrypt transactions that go to people. Now, everybody in the chain will still see the transaction happen, so they can validate everything's kind of kosher there, but they will, you, you can only see the payload. So they okay. won't be able to see the payload that you see a transaction exist. They've also ripped out the uh, consensus mechanism. Uh, it's kind of a deeper discussion, but there's a mining uh, element to this. It's a very high, high carbon footprint. Essentially, when we talked about earlier, the transactions are packed together into a block. 
we got to decide who's going to write that block, and that's the guy who's actually going to get money okay. uh, to do this, the incentive. And what they do are they're given a really hard math problem to solve. It says, go do this hash two to the 50th time. And the first person who can do that gets to write the block. I mean, mm -hmm. in a very simple sense, that's what's happening. Um, when we get into enterprise scenarios, obviously we don't need to run a big math calculation to do uh, transactions with each other. So we switch to things like proof of stake or voting algorithms is what Quorum uses, where we can basically say, hey, from these certain regions, we need everybody to weigh in and this measure the majority from that. So we can really control the network to the workflow that we're trying to perform. So the, the whole algorithm for blockchain seems like it needs to adapt to the, the scenario, whether it's something that's public out in the wild or it's private or it's consortium, I guess in, in all of these scenarios, we need to adapt the algorithm mm -hmm. accordingly. Yeah, I think it's just important for developers, just to circle back from the developers, is to understand the core languages that are involved here, kind of get it used to those, uh, try them out on the blockchain. They all kind of vary. So Ethereum has its smart contracts. Hyperledger Fabric has chain code. Uh, Corda has this thing called Cord Apps, which is a Java uh, jar file, basically, model. Um, so there's a bunch of different variants out there. So understanding what do each blockchain do, and then how can I develop on top of that framework is really important for developers. Okay. Do you have more, or should I wrap us up? No, I think that's it. Uh, okay. I just wanted to, oh yeah, we should touch about one more thing here. One thing we've been innovating on uh, is, is called the POC framework. I just want to give it a shout out here. So uh, what we said was we, when we went out and looked at these enterprise customers, we said, you know, we're spending a lot of time just getting these POCs off the ground because, again, it's a new language. It's kind of a new paradigm for people to start developing on. So they got to learn that. Plus, we got to figure out what their business case is mm -hmm. and get a fit in there. So what if we just said, hey, if you just write the smart contract for us, and that's the only piece you need to do, forget about writing boilerplate code and how do I attach to it and connect and all this stuff. We'll basically take that and we can run it through the system we call our POC framework and it will dynamically generate a responsive web app on the other side of it. Hmm. So all the infrastructure code, all the like boilerplate nonsense yeah. we usually have to write, it's all done for us. Wow. Um, so great for POCs. You can get these things stood up really quickly. Uh, enterprises love this and uh, you know, we're looking to kind of get that thing into production soon. We've talked about it uh, publicly now and it's kind of like in beta form but uh, we're getting ready to release that. Where does a person find more information about that? So should they just search for Project Lexicon? Or Lex yeah, if you look out there for Project Lexington, actually on the Azure blogs, there's a lot of information out there from okay. our product group, and you can find more things about it. Okay, how about any other pointers? You showed us how to go into the Azure uh, portal and click on a new resource and go down, go down to the blockchain category, and that's, a new, that's the easiest way, I think, to spin up a blockchain in your own Azure subscription. But what about other pointers to videos or documentation or, or documents that will help people to on-ramp into the blockchain? Yeah, we did some uh, uh, virtual academy. So if you're familiar with the Microsoft virtual academy model, we actually did a really good one on blockchain a while back. So you can go take <laughs> a look at that. There's a lot of events happening. There's things like DevCon. If you just type in Ethereum out there and look, or, or Bitcoin in that sense, you'll see a lot of these things that are happening out there, these events. And there's a huge developer community swarming around them. The other thing I would say is if you're using Visual Studio, so a lot of our customers, uh, Visual Studio and Visual Studio Code, we actually baked Solidity into it already. Oh, wow. um, so we have some pretty cool stuff already built there to allow you to start working with Solidity uh, directly in the IDE you're familiar with. Um, yeah, where in the IDE do you find that? Uh, so if you go in and just like any other extension inside mm -hmm. Visual Studio, uh, if you're using the full Visual Studio client, you can actually just go into extensions, you can type in Solidity, you'll see it. Solidity is the language that's used for smart contracts. Uh, if you're in VS Code, you can do the same thing, or you can go up to Visual Studio Marketplace and just do a search for that as well, blockchain or, or Solidity. How do you spell Solidity? S-O-L-I-D-T-Y. T-Y, Solidity, yeah. or I-T-Y? Yeah, I-T-Y. Yeah, I-T-Y, yeah. Solidity, okay, yeah. cool. 
Kel, that's a wealth of information about blockchain. <laughs> I, know, I know I learned a lot. Yeah, yeah, this is really fun. So I hope everybody uh, can get out there and start experiencing this new programming technology. I think it's awesome. I think it's a really fundamental thing that's going to uh, touch every part of our life. Yeah, I would point you to two more resources. I found a couple of really good TED Talks on blockchain. Of course, they're very high level, not as technical, but they'll certainly uh, reinforce that this is a major topic for uh, developers going forward, for, for society going forward. Yeah, yeah, definitely. So. Okay, well, let's wrap it up. Okay. Thank you, Kale. Thank, Thank you. you, everybody, for joining us on Code Chat, and we'll see you next time.